You're listening to Story Power, a podcast dedicated to disruptive storytelling. I'm your host, Jen Kinney. Welcome. You know, driving around the U.S., what it made me realize was how ingrained trauma was becoming. And it was such a catalyst for me leaving the States because it wasn't just that, you know, we were traveling. So at the time I was married, I just left a very toxic marriage when I left America. Um, And at the time that we were traveling around, it was my husband and I. And so there were two of us dealing with both being black in America, but also him dealing with being a black male in America and me dealing with being a black woman with comes with its own things, even when you're walking together. Um, And we started to notice that in traveling, the things that we were having to look into, like when we would go to a town, I would look onto the Facebook page of the town to see what kind of comments were being made. I looked up the police departments to see how many black cops were on the force. Um, looked up to see their recent arrests, you know, how many of them were traffic stops and ones that ended badly and, you know, or were they like gas station robberies or something. Um, It made a difference to me. It was, you know, looking at the forums of the towns and seeing those conversations. There were towns we like seriously avoided just by looking at online forums and the conversations people were having in the midst of everything that was going on in the world. And then in the midst of that, to be looking, you know, usually we were a solar powered school bus, which meant that the idea was that we wanted to disappear into the middle of nowhere, because that's what we saw, right, our white travel counterparts doing. And had this amazing solar system that we couldn't use because there became a certain point where being off grid and being in the woods and not being close to Wi-Fi and being in a place where somebody could possibly do something to you and no one was around to follow up became terrifying. So it didn't matter that we had this solar package or that we had all of these other things that would allow us to travel a certain way. We were staying in rest stops and people's driveways out of fear. To come to Curacao, you know, I was really intentional about why I chose this island and partially it had to do with my mother, my late mother and my grief. But a lot of it also had to do with it being an island full of brown people and not having to think about walking into a store and there being anything about the color of my skin, whether that was a funny look, a comment being made that I can be in traffic and not be worried, is this the guy who shoots through my window? Or like that young girl in the Midwest who had acid thrown through her window, what was she, 17? You know, these are the things that were becoming real legit fears that now I don't have to think about. Um, You know, I shared that story about my girlfriend or someone I know who's expatted here also who had a real trauma response to seeing cops drive fast and pull up quickly in front of her. They were there to talk to each other, to have a good time and a conversation. But being a black expat from America, it was like, oh, this is it. And it wasn't it. And the fact that cops here, you know, wear shorts and polo shirts and don't carry guns, I don't know if they have a baton or anything weapon related, shows not just how they manage things here, but also how comfortable the people must be here. That you're walking around and perhaps cops might show up, but you're not at all worried that this is the person that's going to kill you at the end of this. 
what a difference that must be to have a police force that must clearly just be showing up to de-escalate because they have no other means of, of intervening. Um, and that it's been, you know, there's so much fear in the U.S. about what happens when we take the guns away, then crime escalates. And it's like, well, here's an entire island that seemed to have figured it out. People are people. So it's not that there aren't people who like crime in Curacao. But somehow there is an interchangeable relationship where they are not depending on the cops to violently as if that would ever de-escalate any situation. Mm -hmm. um, and so for myself, you know, for this woman that's here for, I think, all Black expats that wind up going to countries where you see yourself walking around all the time, there's such a freedom in that. And it changes your vibration. And I feel like as someone who does the kind of work that I do, I can't show up in my work when I'm scared for my life. And I can't show up in my work when I'm terrified when my partner walks into a store without me. I can't be present in anything that I do if my mental health is in a flight or fight system all the time. And yeah. it just feels good to have landed in a place where I can focus on myself and things that make me happy and, and in giving back and not have to factor in my safety or my mortality into that, which no one should have to do ever. So. No. And just listening to you talk about this and also, you know, like um, Tina Strawn, who mm. moved to Jamaica and is traveling around and stuff. And to listen to her talk about this, it's like, I'm sitting here just thinking about oh, what are we like, what, what are we to do with these truths yeah. and these realities? And it's such a heavy thing. Mm. You know, because I think about um, so many people who aren't able to get out of the country. Mm -hmm. What are some practices that people can lean into yeah. in their day-to-day -day lives living here in the United States? You know, I liken living in the United States sometimes to being in a toxic relationship. And to me, it feels like there are times when you can't leave, right? I, I made a choice to my toxic relationship. I don't have children. I didn't have things that sometimes keep people in situations. Um, I was raised luckily with a mother who was very loud about not staying in, in bad situations. Not everyone was raised like that, right? So there are plenty of reasons why people find themselves in places where they have to stay. And so I'm not someone who's ever like, the only way to deal with this is to get out. Cause I, I don't think that's healthy for the people that are there. I do think you have to find a way to buffer and you have to find a way to protect yourself in situations where you might not find a way out. And one of them is working on what you're saying to yourself. Because I think whether you're in a toxic relationship or leave it, living in toxic America, when the outside stimuli is that you don't matter, and that your life doesn't matter or that your feelings, your emotions, your mental, your mental health, the validity of your gut reactions. When you're told over and over again that those things don't matter, you have to start to be the voice that says, shut the fuck up. And you have to start to be the voice that says they are not right. I am right. Now, that doesn't come easy either. And so sometimes it takes writing down affirmations that you put around your house that says, I'm going to walk out this door and breathe through this. 
I am going to let what people say to me bounce off the best I can. I'm going to seek out people that bring me joy. I think one of the beautiful things that came out of the pandemic was this rise of virtual spaces. And not all of them are good, right? Not all healers are healers, not all leaders should be leading, but I do believe in trying everything. And when things don't feel good for you, walking away, but looking for safe spaces, spaces where there's people who look like you, who are talking about things you like to talk about, who are doing the things that you are interested in because what is true is that we can't change a lot of what's outside toxic relationship for toxic america right mm -hmm. you cannot change that person all the time what you can do is change your response to it if you're having to be in it um i do believe that i felt really good when i felt like i was making a little bit of change and I don't think that means that you need to be standing on the front lines protesting because that's not everybody's lane. Sure. Maybe it's that you're signing petitions at home. Maybe it's that you gather your friends to have monthly, weekly dialogue discussions. Maybe it's that you decide to blog about what you're dealing with. But I also think there has to be something said for as people of color, as white allies, that you must use your voice. Mm -hmm. And that it is not doing anyone a service to be quiet about your pain or to make people continue to feel more comfortable watching and observing your pain and staying silent. Um, I think that while, you know, we've often been told, especially as women, to stay quiet and be quiet and to simmer down. And I think this is the time to, time to get real fucking loud. In whatever way you wish to get real fucking loud, get loud. Start making people uncomfortable. Start making them realize that when they deal with you, they will, they are not allowed to say certain things in your company. They are not allowed to make certain jokes. They're not allowed to, uh-huh, you know, I was just kidding, right? No, right? This is where I feel like we have a, a role to be playing at all times, which is keeping the people around us in check. Um, and I think that that starts to filter out whether it's people who look like you or not, certain shit's not funny and it shouldn't be allowed to be funny. Um, I think that when it comes to living in America, I think you have to start taking your own grief real seriously. Um, whether that is because you're a person of color or you're just living in the country and where violence and grief and death is happening every single day. So to not get comfortable in that discussion, whether it's where you are in it, where your friends are in it, how it's interweaving into your work and into your life, I think you're doing yourself a disservice by not learning how to walk hand in hand by grief and loss. Um, and then figuring out how to manage yourself in spite of it, because what America keeps showing is that it keeps popping up. And the more that we react and get loud as fuck, the more the other side pushes back. And so strengthen yourself, right? You know, we talk a lot about rest. And as a yogi, I'm a big believer in it. Mm -hmm. But I'm also a big believer in get real strong right now and find mm -hmm. people that light you up and find practices. You know, I'm all for sitting and meditating, but take a kickboxing class right? Start throwing plates against a wall in your backyard and screaming. Start leaning into what's already in there and then directing mm -hmm. it to something that feels good. But 
you know, leaning, there's things that we have to start accepting and anger is one of them, I think. And we can accept anger as just the other side of joy. They both have to come hand in hand, but they're both going to lead you through America, toxicity, all these situations that we might find ourselves in that we can't leave or escape. You got to fortify yourself. Yeah, that is powerful. And that resonates a lot with me, you know, just thinking about earlier in our conversation, um, talking about like, can we really even fully experience joy mm-hmm. when so many people don't fully live? Yeah. And part of that not fully living is not being willing to step into emotions that feel scary. that can get out of control, like anger, Mm. you know, Mm. and because then if we feel anger, what is at the root of that anger? And then if we figure that out, we might actually be compelled to do something about that. Mm -hmm. You know, we might be compelled to move against injustice Mm -hmm. and that costs a lot. It's a, it's a messy thing listening to you talk about throwing plates and doing these things, mm-hmm. not throwing plates to throw plates. I don't want to say I'm like, you yeah. know, just this, yeah. you know, like volatile person, but that, that really speaks to me. You know, mm-hmm. I feel like we are in this time, like you're sitting there talking about, you know, it's time to like, get into this. And yeah. I'm like, yes, yeah. it is. I feel this in my soul. Um, because I believe that there's healing on that. Absolutely. You know, on the other side of that. And that's what's so powerful. Something that you were talking about in another conversation uh, was about toxic positivity, like in the wellness mm. industry, in the wellness movement. And there's so much of that. How mm. do you see that getting in the way of um, movement toward liberation, co-liberation, fighting injustice and all of these things? Oh, that's such a good question. It makes me so fired up when I think about it. You know, the wellness world to me, yoga to me, started at birth. And, you know, I've mentioned my connection with Swami Satchananda and many of us who came through the yogic world have a teacher, right? There's some reading we've been doing. There was some training. And what I wish that all yogis would remember is what we remembered in our trainings, right? That there was something called Sangha, which was community, and that you were supposed to be leaning into showing up for your community that there was something called seva, which was service, right? And that we were supposed to be living in perpetual service for people, that there was something called dharma, you know, that there are these words that we have been taught that we show up in our classes and spew out. And it makes me wonder if we, if, if teachers are really remembering what those words were. And that when these sages sat and wrote that they were talking to us about showing up, It was not about sitting in a room and meditating and that the reason for, you know, everything had a reason and the asanas, the yogic postures were supposed to be to make your body strong so that you could sit for long periods of time in meditation and meditation was supposed to be so that you could tune out the outside world so that you could get closer to your inner Brahma, your inner divinity right? With the idea that you held all of that power within yourself. And that when you connected to that voice and to your power, that you could be using that in service and in good, right? That is what we're supposed to be doing. So I've seen it where it's been used as this weapon to when people treat you badly, meditate through it. 
when people are harmful to you, get onto your mat and pray for them. And while I am all for the send love out, the greatest lesson that I believe I've learned and I hope everybody learns is that figuring out how to love yourself is the entire point of this practice, whether it is a yogic practice or the practice of waking up every single morning is figuring out that you matter and that you matter more than all of these other people that you're factoring in. Because when mm. you let go of their opinions, you can figure out what path you're supposed to be on and then help people on that path. It was not supposed to be to become enlightened so that you could help yourself and look cute, right? That wasn't what it was for. And so to me, I get still and quiet so that I can ask myself questions like, what do I need? Mm. What do I, what do I need in this moment? What is my emotion in this moment? Am I angry or sad and why? Yeah. And when I can figure out myself, then when people come to me with things that don't feel good, I can say no or yes better. Right. And then I can show up better for people and help them. It feels like the wellness industry has lost this outward focus of why we were doing this and has turned it entirely into this inner path of self-care. And I hear people talk often, in the, especially in the midst of the civil rights movement of, I'm, I'm loving myself through this. And I don't mean like people of color, specifically white allies. Right, right. Please do not sit around just praying Amen. for my survival. Right. Get up right? Let us sit and pray and meditate and breathe. We don't need you to breathe any longer. Y'all have been breathing for hundreds of years. Yeah. Absolutely crazy to me. It's crazy to me how many white wellness leaders are, are leading retreats to help people work their way through this movement. That is not what should be happening. And you are directing your yogic practice inward right it, it it's 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 backwards towards me if we are believing in karmic yoga and that what i put forth in this life it's what's coming back in the next life then what am i doing in this life mm. it's shocking to me and i think you know it's part of this reset i think we're seeing who are who's performative and who's not i think we're seeing people who have said they live by certain tenets and don't. We see this in a lot of religious and spiritual aspects, right? Yeah. Hiding behind cross and altars and mala beads. It's all bullshit. Mm -hmm. If you're not using it to step forward and help people, then you are only using it for yourself. And I have to believe that is not what, what the divine God, Allah, whatever you, you believe in, that is not what they were asking for. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I have a lot of problems with how they've shown up. I have a lot of problems with these, you know, there's something that happens a lot in wellness studios, satsangs, these weekly discourses of communications among community. And I watch how few have shown up to have communications with the black folks in their own community. Hmm. Because you'd like to keep your, your own yoga studio insulated and you can all sit and send love and light out. Give me a break. Well, and I mean, I'm not part of the yoga community. And so mm -hmm. I have this very like general perspective and listening to you speak is really exciting to me. And, mm -hmm. and like you expose a layer and a depth to yoga that I have never been exposed to really mm -hmm. because 
this consumerist culture, it seems from my perspective, has absolutely stripped yoga of what it is really, truly, and turned it into like an opportunity to wear cute little pants and like stretch and breathe and have stripped it of, of what it is, like its essence. That's got to be incredibly infuriating. It's incredibly, you know, I, I often look at how many, you know, there's hashtags for everything nowadays and the yogic world loves a yoga challenge on, on Instagram, right? And it's literally just hundreds of thousands of people on their heads and twisted into pretzels and look at what I can do. And it's like, imagine if the yoga world started a hashtag for yoga, for showing up for people of color, like using your practice to serve your community. What if we actually started thinking back to our training and Mm. using them and not sitting in front of people also minimizing their trauma because what you are telling people who are going through pain and feeling oppressed that they should meditate through that that is not correct meditate to figure out how to manage yourself in spite of what's happening but there should be some action steps right there mm-hmm. should be some support that shows up in spite of that telling communities of color that they need to turn the other cheek and that they need to just sit with their I mean, these, this is not helpful at all. And in a time like this to not watch them have used what is such a large community Mm -hmm. to not be rippling outwards. Goodness scares me to think that yoga began as brown people brought that here. Let's remember that, right? It was not whoever started Lululemon. It was brown folks who Mm -hmm. came here. We sat at the feet of Indians and prayed to them. And now we are, what, sending OM symbols on hashtags, save India, and that's what we're doing? That is, you know, the hypocrisy is, um, it's a little mind-numbing. And I think there are lots of yogis who have recognized that it was not about the physical practice and that it was about a lifestyle and that, of all, you know, there are eight limbs of yoga. The physical practice was one. It's just one, asana, one. So the other seven limbs are being ignored for, for I don't know what, but I hope that people find their, their way back. Do point. you have hope? And do you see that happening within the yoga world? At this moment, no. I, I see a lot of beautiful BIPOC sanghas coming together. And those are the ones that I've chosen to join. Um, and as someone who grew up in an all white sangha, um, you know, Yogaville outside of Swami Sachananda and the Indian devotees primarily who lived there were all white folks and me. So it, wow. I've always been part of a white sangha and it feels incredibly different to sit with people who look like me, who are breathing for a reason that is, akin to me. That is a whole different coming together. Um, Within the white wellness communities, no. Sadly, no. Yeah. It has been deafening silence. I think what we're going to see is just a splitting. I think there's going to be people who leaned really heavily and heavily into yoga and wellness and for the reasons outside of just the poses. I think there are people who found themselves in this reset, in this civil rights movement, really coming to their mat for something else. 
And then I think there are people who saw, oh, this is a chance to put 5 million pictures up of me in headstands. So, right. Yeah. yeah. I feel this across the board, like yeah. various religions, various expressions and experiences. I do feel like in this reset, as you call it, there is this separation mm-hmm. that it's occurring and it feels very significant to me mm-hmm. in this time. It does. Um, I always think about, you know, one day people will wake up and realize they were on the wrong side of history. Yeah. I choose not to be one of those people. I feel like that's a question folks should be asking themselves. Am I on when my grandchild, child, my nephew asked this question, what happened? What am I going to say I did? Because you, you should be able to say you did more than post a black square on Instagram, right? You should be able to say you did more than follow a hashtag. So what are you going to explain to people 30 years from now for what you did to help move communities forward? I hope people have answers, (laughs) good answers. Yeah. Because that's embarrassing. (laughs) (laughs) So um, before we close out, I want to ask you just a couple of questions. Some of my questions that I had. Um, Yeah. One, I would love, because, you know, you talked a lot about your mom mm-hmm. and particularly her, um, just her fire and energy and the way that she's inspired you. Yeah. Would you like to share anything about her on the show? Oh yeah. Wow. You know, I, it's interesting this mother's day, if you follow me on Instagram, which is Sundry bliss, I did kind of a, a day of tribute to her, which is not something I usually do, but, um, it felt like, you know, grief is so, I always say grief is so fluid and you find yourself sometimes when you're like, nope, don't ask me a thing about her because I'm going to lose my shit. Right. <laughs> and then there are moments when you're like, yes, please. You know, Anandi Malcolm was her name and is her name. And she was a fantastic force is what I call her. Um, of being this woman who came from a West Indian family, our family comes from Montserrat and being first generations in Queens, New York and having lived such an interesting life. And it's one that I think when people ask me now, like, I think I've lived a very interesting life. And I think it's been really because of what I watched in her of being this woman who had been married previously before my father and had left because it was toxic. And she said, hell no. And had been the daughter to, you know, the first black jeweler of Queens and the first black photography studio in New York and having been part of the Black Panther movement and studying to be a Swami until her own mother died and choosing to raise me and then move me from Harlem to Chappaqua, New York, which is very well known for being, you know, the Clintons and, and wealth and, um, and all white and what that was like for her as a black woman um, and to battle best breast cancer twice. Um, And what I learned, what I always think about her is how she always leveled up. And I don't mean that in the way of you're always searching for the next thing, right? I think there's a real truth and you can be present and always be looking towards something. And I think what my mother showed me was you do not need, and I say this with love, but a partner, you do not need a group of people surrounding you to figure out how to make this decision, right? Make the decision and then figure this out. 
do what feels good in your gut. And I think as I watched her get older and then sat at her deathbed, I watched how she leaned into that more and more as she got older and as she was dying. And because she died young, she was 55. And I recognized in that, that it was because she was dying that she was becoming braver. And as brave as I had seen her live, she was still holding back. And she had always wanted to be that Swami. You know, she became a, she got her master's of divinity the year before she died, but that's because religion and faith, she had wanted to lean into that. And do I think she regretted me? No, but do I think she would have loved to have been able to stick with that when it was weird back then? There were no black swamis in the 70s. You know, it was, I think that she always wanted to leave the country. And I think she did live a bit, even as bold as she lived, there was a certain amount of fear and a certain amount of not wanting to say to people that she was taking her daughter and going to another country and starting over. And when I watched her, right before she died, come to this country that I'm in now, it was such a click of grasping for what brought you peace and joy. And that there was a way to live now Mm. that I did not have to be waiting until my deathbed to do so. And she was a force and she was powerful, but she was also, her life is a constant reminder of me of imagine what she could have been if she had lived even bigger if she had been even less, if that's what she was scared, then what could she have been? I'm going to cry talking about her. What could she have been capable of if she had given herself permission Mm. to be the whole version of herself and not just the superhero single black mother? And when I think about my life, you know, I'm sure there are lots of people who have been like, she's chasing or she's always running. And it's like, I wish people would understand choosing joy and not sitting in a box doesn't mean you're lost. Mm. It, it means you are choosing to say yes. And that at the end of my life and what I hope for at the end of people's life is that they've said yes to more than they've said no to. And that you have scared the shit out of yourself. These choices are not, I'm still scared with every choice I make. I just decide to do it anyway. Because what comes from this, to find myself now sitting in this country, it's not that I don't wake up sometimes and say, oh my God, Sundry, where are you and what have you done? But that's just the fear in me talking. The reality is that I made a dream come true and that I'm going to continue to, right? The reality is that I did something that she'd always wanted to do. And that it means that women in my family get to look at me and say, she chose bigger. So that changes how your family operates. I hope some little cousin of mine looks at me and says, oh, I don't need to stay in this marriage because every other woman older than us did, right? And they ended bitter and angry, right? To teach women in your family that you can be scared and still do it. I feel like that is a, that is a responsibility that I think we have to, as women, to the women in our families, to show them that, you know, you don't stay and you don't stay small and you say yes when you want to say yes. So that's Anandi. And yeah, she was amazing. She continues to be amazing. 
Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Thank you for asking about her. Um, my other question that I wanted to ask, I had two, but I could just feel like I want to stay there with Anandi. Um, I think I'll just ask what gives you hope and you can take time and Mm. what gives me hope. I think when I find people like you, when I find people that are opening up spaces for people to have real conversations, I think that gives me hope. I think when I meet people who are brave enough to make other people uncomfortable, it gives me hope. Um, I think when I watch people continue to show up in their life, when I know that things are so hard for them, that gives me hope because as ugly as this world, you know, I, you know, my grandmother used to call it showing your ass. <laughs> and I feel like the world is showing its ass right now. Right. And as ugly as they are showing it to be, I also think it has been this amazing platform for people to find out how strong they could be and find out how capable they were and how creative they could be and how, how some people do need handholding but are willing to walk through doors of change with you. And I have hope when I see that. Um, because I think that there's, you know, in, we talked about yoga and one of the things that my Swami used to always talk about was the duality of humans and there's so much light that comes with darkness. And when I think about the, that in a macro sense, it's like there's so much darkness right now. And when I see people who are intentionally trying light, that brings me an incredible amount of hope because we need that. We need people who recognize that light is important and it's necessary and that if you're choosing to be a light worker, find your own support system because you need help too. But living to me, what is a yogic life and recognizing that we are here. You know, I always think about it like we're just walking each other home at this point. And to be here with each other and not recognize the impacts that we're having is sad. And for those who do recognize that impact, I think they just make me really, they light me up. Those people make me really hopeful. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Where can people follow you and what projects should we be watching for? Uh, So they can find me with the dinner party as the director of BIPOC Wellbeing. On Friday nights, I run a POC group. Fridays at 7.30 p.m. that you can come drop in and join at any time. It runs every single Friday where we talk about our personal grief, but also just what's happening in the world. Um, My blog is namasteusa.blog. And I write a lot about my travels and race and just my life. And I try to have those uncomfortable conversations on there. Um, I'm on Instagram at Sundari Bliss. 
Um, I am writing a book right now called Lessons from Anandi. And I'm really excited about that and have been hemming and hawing about doing it because I know it's going to require so much of my own emotional work. Um, but I hope to release that on her birthday. It's not going to be a long book. And so it's August 17th. August 17th is my birthday and August 16th is hers. And so it's going to be just a gift from the heart, but something that I hope that people will connect with. And so those are all of my big projects right now um, and where I can be found. And hopefully, you know, I'm in Curacao now with the hopes of continuing to lead retreats like I was in the U.S. And, and there will be a life and death center here. And so we're going to keep toiling away. Um, and I hope that people stay in touch and in tune and reach out. I'm always doing my doula work. So, you know, I work as a death doula um, for persons, families, and organizations. Those are all the things. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your story with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was wonderful. Yeah. I really appreciate it. Ooh, I should have tissues on my desk and I'm like <laughs> looking at a rag. When and you so change I'm like, your shirt. I know I'm like riding the mute button and sniffling and snoring. <laughs> that was beautiful. Thank you so much. Seriously. Like, and this is like the, these are the conversations that give me hope, you know, yeah. like I ask that question because I feel like hope is that fuel for us. Right. Like mm. somewhere we hope. Yeah. And that moves us forward to contend for more. Um, and it does feel so dark, so yeah, dark. So I feel so honored when I get to have conversations like this and, mm. and just have those connecting points with another human who is, who is doing this. And it's like, yeah, we're out there. <sighs> we're out there. I call it like, we're all involved in this Care Bear stare right now. And we just need to keep hearts open, ah. keep Care Bear staring it out. Oh. Eventually the, sh the shit's gonna work. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> oh my gosh. And I identify heavily with Grumpy. That's all I'm oh, gonna say. He is know? my fave. Mm -hmm. All blue. He's so great. He's so great. I always love the grumpy ones. Mm, yeah. <laughs> thank you so much for this. Oh, this thank wonderful. you. And I'm going to reach out to you in a couple of weeks and see how the move went. Cause I just yeah. want to know how it goes. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Take care. Take care, Jen. Bye. Mm -hmm.